Hello and welcome to another episode of Table Talk, the podcast where we connect current culture with Christianity. And in this episode, our topic I'm sure will have touched the lives of many of our listeners, uh, whether it's their loved ones, friends or family. Uh, We're going to be talking about the big C, cancer, and there might even be some listening battling that right now. And uh, Graham and I, we're in awe of our special guest. We're going to be speaking to Jeremy Marshall, who sat here now in our virtual studio and can't wait to chat to you, Jeremy. We'll say hi in just a moment, but first I thought I'd do a very brief intro. It's not that brief because you've done a lot, but didn't really know where to start. So I picked some bits, but as a kid... I've heard that you smuggled Bibles into USSR with your dad and family uh, for fun, that you um, later became the first non-family CEO of uh, Hawes Bank. Now you, with some friends, own another very unique bank called Kingdom Bank. You're a big Watford football fan. You are a husband, your dad of three grown-up kids, charity trustee. And then more recently, and we'll put the details of this book, plus other things that Jeremy's done in our show notes, but a published author, Beyond the Big C. And we'll be speaking about that throughout the episode. Uh, But it is a fantastic book. I've read it. I would buy it for anyone who wants to read it, and I'll send it to you. But anyway, I think that's enough of an intro. On top of all of that, uh, and why we brought Jeremy on, is that 10 years ago, Jeremy found out he had cancer and then a few years after that he found out it was incurable cancer and so that's what we want to speak to Jeremy about and Jeremy thanks so much for joining I don't know if I missed anything but you're really welcome to Table Talk. Oh great Jack thanks for having me yeah I first had cancer nearly 10 years ago and the hospital said it was curable then for about two years everything went back to normal and then yeah seven years ago I was re-diagnosed and the, uh, the hospital said, look, you've got tumors everywhere. There's not really a great deal we can do. And, uh, yeah, you never exactly know. And obviously I'm still alive. So it's good to caveat it. But yeah, you've probably got 18 months to live. Wow. So Jeremy, before we, before we go much further into that, and I think obviously we're going to spend a lot of the episode going through that and talking about your experience, but, I did want to follow up on some of the things that Jack mentioned in that introduction. First of all, smuggling Bibles into the USSR. You know, I, I I think most, most parents would probably go to center parks or maybe take their kids to the beach. It sounds like your dad, his idea of a holiday was to go and smuggle Bibles into the USSR. But can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, my father was an amazing character. Yeah, he just decided, hey, let's go Bible smuggling. So it wasn't just me and my father was also my mother and my three younger sisters so when we first went in 74 we didn't only go to the USSR we went everywhere all over Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain I was like 10 and my younger sister was one and we did it for about 10 years but as a as a boy you don't really know do you You think that's what everybody does on their summer holidays (laughs) so uh, it was an eye-opener the USSR to cross the border took about seven or eight hours. So um, when eventually we got through, we then would turn up in, let's take Ukraine in Lviv or Kiev or Kharkiv, and uh, the church was under tremendous pressure. Often the pastor would be in the Gulag Archipelago, which was the Siberian labor camps, and the people in the church would be under the surveillance of the authorities, and they would make sure you couldn't get a job or somewhere to live or go to university. So for the people there, being a Christian, 
had a real cost. Wow. And I mean, Jeremy, what there must have been some interesting moments crossing the border. I think what stands out? Yeah, Dad would haggle with the border guards. So they would say, have you got any Russian Bibles? And Dad would say, yes. And under the Soviet constitution, I'm allowed to have them for personal use. So they'd say, well, how many have you got? He'd say 50. And they'd say, well, that's too many. Dad would say, well, how many can I bring in? And there would be a kind of backwards and forwards. And once, um, because my younger sister Becky was very young, Dad said, well, we need some because we're learning Russian. And they said, yeah, but she's too young to read. Dad said, no, she's not. Becky was like three or four or something. <laughs> said, Go ahead, Becky. So she gave her an English Bible and she started reading it very loudly. And all the border guards were like, stop, stop. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, Dad also thought because the communist system was very corrupt. There were two things with a high intrinsic value behind the Iron Curtain. One were Bibles, the other one were Levi jeans. <laughs> so that when the border guards took, say, 25 and left us 25, they'd sell their 25 on the black market. So they'd get there in the end under one steam or another. I thought you were going to say then that you'd brought like 20 pairs of Levi jeans as well for the guards. Although Dad did get into quite a bit of illicit currency trading. In Romania, for example, the real exchange rate was like 50 to 1, lay to sterling, but the, the, you know, the, the fixed rate was, was 2 to 1. So Dad would disappear behind a few trees and do some kind of black market exchange. <laughs> <laughs> That's my father. If he hadn't been a pastor, he'd have been a pirate. <laughs> Amazing. I love that behind the Iron Curtain, the two uh, two forms of currency turned out to be Bibles and Levi jeans. So, Jeremy, fascinated to hear about that. And the other thing that really struck me was just the stat that Jack mentioned there of the first non-family CEO of Hora's private bank in 350 years. I mean, that's that's a, an achievement. I mean, maybe for people who aren't familiar with Horace Bank, could you maybe just give us a quick intro to, to sure. the establishment itself? And then what was it like becoming the CEO of a yeah. family-run company like that? So it's an amazing bank, which most people have never heard of because it's so exclusive. If you want to imagine the head office building, think of Gringotts, <laughs> the goblins. The bank's been on the same side since 1690. And... What's amazing, and this year is actually the bank's 350th anniversary, is it's still owned by the whole family. It's on the 12th generation of family ownership. The family have uh, unlimited personal liability. It's the only bank in the UK that has that. And it's a wonderful place to work. I absolutely love my time there. Now, yeah, it was an honor to be the first ever non-family CEO. I worked in banking all over the world, but that to me, that was the high point of my career for sure amazing and how did you start there jeremy did you i mean was that a move in to become a ceo or did you have another role there prior to that or all my family for generations were either pastors or teachers so i was the black sheep and i grew up in hemel hempstead which ends watford which was the town my father was in i went to the local book stand at comprehensive Somehow managed to wangle my way into Cambridge and then, yeah, went into the city and worked in Switzerland with Credit Suisse and various other places, worked on Wall Street. So I spent most of my career private banking, which is a euphemism for helping very wealthy people. I quickly had no Russian oligarchs, though. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, good to get to know you, Jeremy. I mean, I, I think Graham and I could spend hours chatting to you about all of that. But I thought the reason uh, we actually invited you on is to 
to speak about your battle with cancer. And that started over 10 years ago, but with the more recent diagnosis, you know, six years ago. And I just wondered, could we rewind to that? And maybe just tell us pre-cancer, how you imagined your future life? I know that's a bit of a hypothetical question, but it might help us to understand what point you're at in your life and how you saw your life unfolding. Well, I think like all of us, Jack, we don't like to think about death, do we? Isn't that strange? It's the one thing in life that's inevitable. Everything else may or may not happen, but we don't like to think about it. Why? Because we have no answer for it, which is why in, you know, in Victorian times, supposedly the great unmentionable was sex. Today is death. If you go to a funeral service, they're often over in 20 minutes. A life boiled down to 20 minutes. And we can't wait to get out of there. Why? Because we're afraid of death. And cancer is so frightening because it's a silent disease. All other diseases like heart disease and so on, you have some kind of symptom. Cancer is so dangerous because it's silent. So what I imagined my life was, yeah, like being on a comfortable train with a nice destination retirement. Although, of course, that's not the final destination, is it? There's one beyond that, but we don't want to think about that. And suddenly, there's like a jolt, you know, that the carriage shakes and suddenly you're on a completely different line. And the destination board was... And the destination is death, 18 months. And suddenly someone comes and sits opposite you, who's the grim reaper who looks at you. But we also, we're afraid to talk about cancer <laughs> because cancer's like the right-hand man or woman of death, if you like. Hence, the big C in yeah. my book, Beyond the Big C. Yeah. The big C is a euphemism, isn't it? We don't like to say cancer. We don't like to say death. So we talk about passing away. And just... For for many of our listeners, I don't know, they're kind of young professionals, 20 and 30s. I mean, it's not uncommon, uh, to be honest, I often think like this, that you think about your 30s and 40s or early 50s and you're just thinking, I'm just going to get my head down and work really hard. And then, as you said, just kind of wind down and retire. But do, do you sympathise with that? I, I understand what you're saying, which is it was a bit of a jolt for you, but... Um, surely for most of us, we just think like that, don't we? We're just kind of getting our head down, working hard. You must have worked pretty hard and not really thought that much about it. Yeah, failure is success at things that don't really matter. So we're all climbing the ladder, aren't we, of success? And I did that too. And by the way, that's not wrong. Yeah. Nothing wrong with making a good career. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. But when you get to the top, all careers end in failure. Look at all the successful heroes of business. Everybody's career ends in death. So you're climbing this ladder and what's at the top? I've spent my life advising very wealthy people who have been very successful, made hundreds of millions. But as they go up the ladder, do they find happiness and fulfillment? No. In many ways, the more successful people are, the more restless they are. Look at Musk or Bezos, right? They're incredibly mega wealthy beyond their you know, remotest abilities to spend, and yet they're always looking for something else because ultimately climbing a ladder is fine, but ultimately our design is not ladder climbing. A man called Augustine about 1,600 years ago said this, you, God, have made us for you, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. So by all means climb the ladder, 
but what are you going to find at the top? Mm. What's the destination on the train? Mm. By all means, work hard on the train, you know, plan, dream. That's not wrong. Yeah. But where's the train headed? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I do think that's helpful for us to hear. No, absolutely. And I think it's it's interesting as well, just reflecting on, you know, often when I think about my faith or I think about these types of questions, I feel a little bit inauthentic, to be honest, Jeremy. I, I find, you know, I've had a very easy life, really, all things considered. And I think it's really interesting to hear someone like yourself reflecting on that, who, you know, you've, you got to the top of the tree, you were the CEO, and you are now, you know, going through having cancer, and you've had that diagnosis, and you've been, you know, all of the all of the terrible things that come along with that. And I think to hear your reflections on that are just, it's, it's interesting to see that that's still where you're landing. Absolutely. What is the purpose of your life yeah and for a lot of people it's make a lot of money have fun be successful that's not wrong but that's not a purpose mm. absolutely jeremy just to sort of maybe go through this in a, a little bit sort of chronologically i suppose and, and, and in a bit of detail i mean can you share with us exactly how you found out you had cancer i mean what was that moment if you could just talk us through that so nine ten years ago i found a tiny lump on my rib and i went to the I've ended up at the hospital. I said, if you've got cancer, it's treatable. And then seven years ago, um, I was at a friend's house. I went to adjust my collar. It was a hot May day. And I felt this massive lump, like a golf ball on my collarbone. And I felt sick to the stomach. I knew exactly what it was. And I went back to the hospital because I've been going for screening. And then they told me yeah, what I said earlier. You've had it. So the guy said, well, we need to start chemotherapy straight away i said well like when well tomorrow so yeah when that happens by the way that puts everything else in perspective mm. nobody on their deathbed says i wish i'd spend more time in the office so it happened very abruptly overnight and then yeah since then i've just been through one chemotherapy after another last week i had my 40th i've had about a dozen operations you can hear my voice i've got a tumor on the vocal cord so I need to have another operation. I lost both eyesight, a sort of side effect of the treatment. I got one eye back. That was pretty terrifying to be in chemo and to be blind. And then uh, yeah, in lockdown two years ago, I had kind of major heart issues, again, probably caused by the treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's been really yeah, the most unpleasant experience. And that's not the worst. The worst is actually the impact it has on your family, on your loved ones. Yeah, cancer's... A horrible thing. The thing that's kept me going has been Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Someone asked me today at lunch, you know, if you weren't a Christian, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't really see the point of keeping going, to be honest. Mm. I, I, I was just going to ask about that, Jeremy. And because I, I suppose that some of the emotions, if you don't mind me asking, sort of what were some of the emotions that you went through there? You've talked about, you know, it's terrifying and it's there's there's fear there. You've also talked a lot about hope um, and this sort of trust in, in God and in Jesus and that relationship. I mean, what, what was the train of that? And emotion, Graham, is fear, mm -hmm. terror. So when I thought of fear, I thought of a story in the Bible about Jesus where one day he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. This is in three of the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And in the middle of the lake, suddenly, with no warning, a tremendous storm breaks. And the boat is sinking and the disciples, 
who are experienced fishermen are terrified, like me, in the cancer hospital. And Jesus is asleep. And that's also what you feel. You feel like, God, how can you do this to me? Mm. Eventually, the disciples roughly wake Jesus up. Don't you care? We're going to drown. And that's what I felt like and feel like now. Lord, don't you care? And then Jesus rebukes the storm. And suddenly, he goes from a raging storm to a mill pond calm. In the eyewitness accounts, it says, then Jesus' followers, they realized who was this man in their boat. This was God himself. So that was my, and has been, and is my experience. There's a fear of death, a fear of cancer. But in my boat is Jesus Christ. And actually, I believe what he says about himself and what the eyewitness accounts tell us is true. And that's transformational. That makes 180 degrees of difference versus no answer to death. And Jeremy, was it fairly quick to arrive at that point? Because you've, you've obviously had a Christian faith you know, throughout your life. But did it take time for you to reconcile all of this and rationalize that? I, I, I would imagine there would almost be, it would be very understandable to have a lot of bitterness and frankly anger at God. Why am I, why are you doing this? Why am I in this situation? Did it take time to arrive at that point of that yes. calmness? Uh, you think I've arrived at a point of calmness? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a daily struggle. Mm. I never felt angry with God. I never doubted if God existed. But what I wondered was, is it true? Because it's tremendously helpful to be in a sinking boat to think, I've got God in my boat. But the question is, is he really there? Are his promises bankable, if you like? You know, if, Graham, you gave Jack a check for $10 million, Jack would probably think, yeah, great, you know, ah, oh, right? <laughs> the question with the promises of God is, are they true? Are they bankable? That wasn't is my question, not is it helpful? Is it true? And the reason I believe that it is true is because Jesus Christ, Christians believe, came back from the dead. Eddie Izzard, a really interesting person, he was interviewed and uh, he said this, he said, all my life I've been haunted by the death of my mother from cancer when I was a kid. If only she or someone had come back from beyond the grave to tell us there's something there. Well, when I heard that, I felt really sorry for Eddie because that's exactly the Christian message. That one person not only came back, he promises us to take us through death and to take us to himself. Um, you mentioned earlier that one of the really tough things is uh, the kind of communication of this and sharing this. Um, and I just wanted to ask is, I mean, is there any good way of sharing such heartbreaking, tragic news uh, with friends and family? Um, I, I understand everything you've just said about the hope that you have, and but I just wanted to ask you honestly, how how have you found sharing that? I find humour helps. So when I was got that diagnosis seven years ago, our children were all at university, and rather than tell them on the phone, we drove there to tell them. And one of our kids thought that we'd come to tell him that the dog had died. So... <laughs> I thought I thought that was pretty funny. Actually. So, oh, yeah! I like to kind of make some joke with chemotherapy. Having had forty, I like to joke that 
it's a pity the Royal Marsden doesn't give frequent flyer points. <laughs> <laughs> so humour is good. Wow. Thanks. One thing that has just been on my mind as you've been talking is trying to imagine what it would be like to be told that you've got 18 months to live and what that, what you would then want to go and do. How have you thought about spending that time? Well, one thing, basically I would divide my time into three blocks. The big block is medical treatment, right? I have no choice over that. Yeah. The second block is spending time with my family, especially with my kids. I love that. So our daughter, Naomi, got married three years ago. I could walk her down the aisle. One of my sisters got married a couple of weeks ago. My father died 20 years ago, so I could walk her down the aisle. That was lovely. But the third thing, and that I love doing, is telling people about Jesus Christ. Because he's so transformative. And, by the way, he's transformative not just to the end of your life, but now. You know, yeah, you can come to Jesus on your deathbed. But as we say in the city, that's a really bad trade. Jesus Christ is utterly amazing. And we each of us need him now. And if you get Jesus into your boat, that's the best decision you'll ever make. And if you're listening and you think, oh, Jeremy's obviously a religious person. Remember, friends, I'm a banker. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from politicians and estate agents, that's the least religious type of person you get. And what happens with cancer is it's a great door opener. For example, just before lockdown two years ago, I got to speak to 22,000 people at Watford, uh, Premier League game, and they interviewed me at half-time, and I just talked about what we've just been talking about, what's it like living with cancer, and my faith. And then an amazing miracle happened. Watford won. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that must have been terrifying. A few weeks before, Watford had been losing 3-0 at half-time, and the half-time interviewer had kind of misjudged the mood and the crowd started booing. So I don't normally pray for Watford results, <laughs> as you can see from recent results. Lots <laughs> more, more important things to do. But I did pray. I prayed, Lord, let Watford not be losing. And about five, ten minutes before half-time, Watford scored. So the crowd, apart from the Wolves, they're in a great mood. So... God even oversees football matches. Brilliant. Jeremy, have you always looked to share your faith in that way? Has the urgency increased in the last few years? Yeah, the urgency has definitely increased because I feel I could be dead easily in a year. So I have to get on with it. It's as if I had a cure for cancer and I want to tell other people about it. And people's response, yeah, definitely, because they can see it's real. Mm. And they can also see that, well, Jeremy, you're in this valley, in this hole. You're not trying to let... People often think that Christians look down on other people, that we think we're better than them. We're telling them what to do. I'm not telling anyone what to do. I'm in a dire strait, in a (laughs) hole. But that vulnerability makes people interested then, especially that they all realize sooner or later I'll be in that hole. So, yeah, it makes people curious. And I think COVID in Ukraine has shaken people as well. Mm. Again, is this really weird thing. And I appreciate if you're in your 20s and 30s, you know, you've probably got 50 or 60 years ahead. One day, you're going to meet God face to face. And God is going to say to you, because you might 
a man called Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist, said, if I meet God, I'll say to him, not enough evidence, which is a pretty stupid thing to say. God will say to you, if you reject him, well, you heard this strange podcast from those two gooky guys and they had this <laughs> cancer banker on and you heard about my son and what did you do? So death is real, but there is an answer to death. <laughs> That's a big claim. And the answer to death is a person, Jesus Christ. That's what we're offering. We're offering the answer to death. And if you think, well, come on, I'm not falling for that. Fair enough. Look into it. Decide for yourself if it's true. Yeah. And Jeremy, I think what you said there about coronavirus and, and Ukraine and all these sorts of things, I, I do think it's this, it's shaken a lot of people. It's, I think it's the first time probably in this generation's lifetime that there have been some, that there's been something truly existential. And I, I do think that it's definitely raising this big, big question, these existential questions for the first time, I think. And it's quite uncomfortable. So yeah, if you're listening, look into it, figure out is Christianity true? The claims of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I'm the life. Is that true? And if you're not sure how to look into it, ask a Christian friend. Or if you haven't got one, I'm sure Jack or Graham, they don't seem to have much else to do. They could help you. Just say, hey, can we look at the Bible together? And be as skeptical as you like. Being a Christian is not about a kind of intellectual exercise where you eliminate all doubts. It's about Jesus Christ and realizing his claims are actually true. Be curious. Be curious. Yeah. Look into it. Decide for yourself. Is it true? Simple mm. as that. Simple as that. It's been a huge privilege to talk to you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for, for talking to us today. It's, it's been a pleasure listening to you and, and, uh, and just sort of understanding a bit more about your experience and everything you've been doing. So thank you for sharing with that with us and, and for just sharing just the conviction and the hope that you've got. I hope it's powerful to people. It certainly resonated with me. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you.